This is Luke Legacy, and this is the Decide Podcast. We cover culture, subcultures, and the people that are in them that keep them moving forward and the decisions that they have to make to do so. Not only that, we're covering really dope topics, giving different perspectives, and inviting you to chime in. So contact us through email, decide, period, brand, one, the number one, at gmail.com. Subscribe, share, and follow us on IG at decide, period, brand. Let's get into the episode. This particular episode is inspired by Ahmad Arbery's untimely death. This is a collection of conversations amongst friends as we try to gain understanding and perspective from different cultural backgrounds about Ahmad's story and so many stories just like it. Hi, I'm Jonathan Mann. I'm a former career journalist. I worked as a foreign correspondent. I worked as an anchor. Uh, for CNN, uh, traveled the world, seen a lot of things, and I live in Atlanta now, where uh, the culture of the American South is just fascinating and heartbreaking to me. I am, you know, I'm an affluent white guy. I'm a, an American Jew. I was born in Canada. I have a lot of Canadian instincts about living in the United States, but uh, I'm a patriotic American who, uh, who really hopes this country will be everything it deserves to be. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. Like. Uh, yeah, I can, hear, I can hear you now. Hey, go ahead and introduce yourself. Okay, no problem. Uh, my name is Larry Harris Jr. Some people call me Black Bobby. Uh, I've been a social entrepreneur since I was uh, 16 years old in high school when I co-founded the Black Students Union at my mostly white high school. Um, I went to college in Boston, and in my senior year, uh, while I was on the student government, I founded, co-founded a nonprofit with three friends from student government. Um, that nonprofit recruited and trained millennials to run for public office with the idea of creating a sea change in government by bringing idealism into politics or backing the politics, no matter how you see that. I think idealism is very important. Um, I went to the Kennedy School of Government after that, um, worked in consulting uh, doing Fortune 100 consulting, and then quit that job to help my brother start a record label in Miami, Florida, where I lived for about six years, performing all over the uh, South Florida uh, and also up the East Coast. Um, I'm a black male. I'm originally from Washington, D.C. Um, I live in Atlanta, Georgia, in the Edgewood neighborhood, and I love Atlanta. I love Georgia. But these recent events leave a lot to be desired. So I'm glad we're having this conversation. Thank you very much for having me on um, this morning. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's jump right into it. Um, you know, we are talking about Ahmad Arbery and um, the story that the story that has been circulating for the past week that has went viral. Um, and it's not a situation that just happened. It happened in February. But, you know, right now, this is what people are talking about, aside from COVID-19. So I felt it was necessary to, you know, do what we can as a community and have this open conversation with uh, people that I knew and then people that are also complete strangers um, to each other. So speak freely. And the first question I'm going to ask, you know, upon hearing this story, what were some of your thoughts and feelings? And let's start with John. I thought it was an obscenity. 
I thought it was a reminder of how little things have changed in this country and how little things have changed in this state. And I think it points to a whole lot of problems at a whole lot of levels, which is that innocent man wasn't just shot by a racist moron. He was shot by a racist moron who had a badge, who was a police officer and then was a prosecuting um, investigator for the DA's office. How much evil, how many crimes did that guy commit under the color of law? And I choose that phrase carefully. uh, Mm -hmm. Before he did this as a private citizen. I mean, it goes back decades. Something is so sick and broken and criminal in Brunswick. And it makes you wonder how many different people have suffered, how many different crimes have been committed. Um, and, um, and, uh, it's just sickening. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I definitely, I, I could agree with you on that. Larry, your thoughts, your first thoughts upon hearing this story. Um, yeah, thank you for asking. So I actually, this, uh, reminded me of a lynching, um, and the reason I use that word is because it's a very powerful word in American history. Um, you know, uh, I don't know how many people know who Candace Owens is that's going to be listening to this podcast, but I've heard her call the idea that this is a lynching uh, stupid uh, because there weren't enough people involved and there weren't enough, you know, obviously uh, white hoods or something like it was a, they need a Hollywood crew and lighting uh, and uh, special stage effects in order for this to be a real lynching. You know, just the fact that two two people looked at Ahmad, saw a black male and said something so suspicious is happening in this case that I need to get back up and weapons in order to pursue him in something that was very easy. If they had just called the police and left it alone, this would have been a non-story. So obviously people had race on their mind at some point in their calculation as to what they were doing. And it, it recalls a time in history when uh, black men, black women, were uh, seen as property, seen as uh, pieces of, or objects, I should say, um, and their lives were not valued. And, and, it, and it raises the question, are our lives valued now? It does, it really does raise the question. And this is why this conversation is important because, you know, people take sides. People take sides almost immediately um, when, when stories like this come out. And it's not the first story. Um, and, and, and these stories have come out consistently over the years. Some are not publicized, some are looked over or just swept under the rug. So it's good when these stories come to light because when forming an opinion with stories such as Ahmad's, I'm going to ask y'all, how important is evidence when trying to prove who's right or wrong versus humanity? I, you know, I, I don't even know if it comes down to evidence. And I, Here's what, why I, I'm so appalled. They're going to have to seat a jury to convict these guys. Who's mm-hmm. the jury going to be? I don't right. care what the evidence is. The, there will be people on the, on the jury who don't care what the evidence is. If they seat a white jury, these guys are going to walk. You know, right. this has happened before so many times. I hate to make it sound like nothing has changed in, in 100 years in this state. But if they seat a white or they seat a jury with three white people on it, all they need is a hung jury and these guys walk. Um, right. I mean, and to, to the point about lynching, because there weren't enough people involved, there was the DA's office. Remember, two DA's recused themselves, and one of the DA's who recused himself wrote a letter saying that there wasn't in, there weren't grounds for charges. There were a whole bunch of people involved, and I think that's one of the important things to keep in mind here. When something like this happens in a place like Brunswick, it's not two homicidal morons. It's a whole fabric of society that lets this kind of thing happen, and that had one of those homicidal morons on staff 
carrying a gun given to him by the state of Georgia so that he could, quote unquote, enforce the law. This is a network of filth and obscenity and hatred that gets revealed. And like I said, you know, if they if they seat the right kind of jury, they're going to get more filth in the jury process. And these guys are going to walk. Uh, you know, the, 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 the astonishing thing is that that according to the New York Times, and I'm not I'm not in a position to to, to tell you more than that. According to the New York Times, the Brunswick Police Force has been sued 17 times in the last decade for the unlawful use of force. The chief of police of Brunswick was arrested um, and because he was involved in an incident that was both violent and then there was a cover-up involved. When the attorney general of the state of Georgia takes office and someone should have told him, you know what, there's a really, really out-of-control police force in Brunswick, and you'll forgive me for putting it this plainly, gentlemen, they weren't just shooting black people, they were shooting white people. You know, you think somebody in the state of Georgia would care about that, at least. It was a completely out of control police force doing seriously bad things, criminal things, dangerous things, homicidal things. And we only find out about it now because of a video. It's like, where's the attorney general? Where's the state of Georgia? Where's the governor of Georgia? I mean, so to me, it is a lynching because it was not an isolated act. My question, and I'll, I'll end it with this, is how many different guys did that bastard put behind bars by faking the evidence for racist reasons he was a prosecuting investigator for the da's office how many people are in jail because that guy decided to fake the evidence how many people did he arrest unfairly and criminally because he was a racist idiot i mean the fabric of this is so big um it's it's anyway it's sickening no and i totally agree with you and it's inhumane and it's ridiculous and that what what happens in these cases is is that Evidence is brought up against the person that is no longer here to actually defend themselves. So then stories are formulated. But I keep telling people there are layers upon layers upon layers in the black community, in the white community, in that community in Brunswick, Georgia, because I am familiar with it because I have family that live out there currently. Um, you know, there are there's layers to all of the things that we're talking about. And I appreciate you mentioning um, those different things about the police force out there. A lot of people are talking about things um, in a matter of factish way. And that's one of the ways that the the conversation does not get perpetuated because of not knowing um, facts or digging deeper um, behind the layers. And I think that it's important that we you know, understand the full scope. And at the end of the day, someone lost their life and it could have been avoided. Um, Black Bobby, your thoughts? Yes, sir. Uh, yeah, I, first of all, I wanted to thank Jonathan for bringing up, uh, you know, what he didn't refer to as, but was alluding to as institutional racism, because there are so many people in this country that deny the existence of institutional racism. And right here in this case, we can see with the DA recusals. And in one case, a DA first said there should be no charges brought and then recused himself. That's ridiculous. So, you know, you can see the institutions uh, that are permeated with uh, bigotry, discrimination, colorism, racism right there. Um, And also uh, the fact that there probably will not be justice brought in this case. I mean, if we're keeping it 100, because of the location, because of the geography, et cetera, um, you know, this probably won't be the justice that people are looking for in this case. I will say 
they just appointed a new DA, and a lot of people are concerned about that. It's a black woman. She was an AKA. Uh, she is from South Georgia, but she's the Cobb County DA. So what happens if the autopsy comes back and there's some drugs in the system or something like, like marijuana? You know, that's going to be a very problematic thing for a Cobb County DA who has political aspirations. Um, she's the first black woman to be the DA of Cobb County. I mean, this just, this just seems like a situation that's rife with uh, problems, uh, problematic, they might call it these days. So, you know, um, I, I, I'm hoping that uh, Ahmad gets a fair hearing. Uh, sure. I'm hoping that all of the, the, the demonizing that people are doing currently about why he was there, why he peeked in a house, uh, whether he was just a jogger, all that kind of stuff. I hope all that stuff goes to the wayside because the honest truth is, does anyone, anyone deserve to die because they were on a street at the wrong time in the wrong neighborhood, you know? It, it just That's goes just to ridiculous. show, I agree with everything yeah. you just said, and I just make another point. It shows you how thin the rule of law and the concept of law is in this country when people say, oh, he might have stolen something from a construction site, so he deserved to get shot. Like, yeah. Even, if you're, yeah. even if you're accused of a crime in this country, you know, a revolution was fought and great minds came together to establish the rule of law and the presumption of innocence. He still had a right to a trial. Even Absolutely. if he was a crack smoking heroin dealer, he still had a right to a trial. Cops don't Absolutely. get to shoot bad guys just because they're cops and the bad guys are bad. Even crazy criminal bad guys have the right to a trial. So when people say that, it's like, Dude, do you know where you live? Do you understand why we have laws to protect the rights of the accused? It's yeah. It's the, the, the adherence yeah. to the rule of law in this country is so superficial and thin. And if you're a black man who may have been on a construction site without permission, we can smoke you? Like That's ridiculous. Yeah, to, to not not to mention, let me just add this. You know, my mother uh, is a real estate agent and was a real estate agent as I was growing up, and I can there are countless amounts of times that I've walked through uh, houses under construction. We looked at houses all of the my time. My wife does it all the time. She loves to look at real estate. Oh my God. <laughs> all the time, all the time. It's it's fun. It's like, you'd love to see a house and like the, the infrastructure, no one's right. breaking in, but if it's wide open, we surely would walk in. You bet. So um, closing thoughts, y'all. I appreciate y'all's time. I really, really do. Closing thoughts. I'm going to ask you, what do you feel should happen next slash how do we continue to show that we actually care? Jonathan, you want to go ahead first? <laughs> you, you always let me talk first and go on. I'll put you on the spot. Some federal institution <laughs> should take over the police department of Brunswick and say hmm. the mayor and the city council has failed the people of this community by empowering this twisted criminal organization with guns and badges and the federal government same way they take over prisons that are badly run in the state of georgia they did that for decades the same way they've taken over school boards that have been racist and refused to integrate they should take over the police department and for crying out loud the mayor and the city council the people of the of the city of brunswick should answer to the people and say this is why we have that kind of criminal police force. These whose interests were served, because somebody's, somebody's interest was served by having those people in power. Someone's got to come yeah. clean and someone's got to fire that entire police department and start from scratch. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, Black Bobby. Yes, sir. Um, so I would, I'm going to be a little bit more uh, kind of uh, abstract, I guess. Uh, I would love for a conversation 
to begin in Georgia. This is, we're calling this a purple state now on the verge of being a blue state. People are acting like they're getting behind progressive policy and progressive candidates for public office. Stacey Abrams being the shining example. I would love for a conversation to go on in this state about the institutions that exist that are preserving discrimination and racism in the state. Uh, you know, for example, in this case, two laws are being cited, self-defense and also um, uh, citizens arrest. Uh, you know, citizens arrest, you know, what, whatever you feel about the history of the police department, citizens arrest obviously has a racist overtone and, and, and past. Um, and I would like to see laws like that go by the wayside over time. So I would love to see a general conversation in Georgia about how we can improve the experience for people that are not of the majority uh, you know, race, that people that are not white in this state can live here, function here, run businesses here, and feel free to enjoy the state just like any other person. Yes, yes, I completely agree. And um, after talking to so many people, I also, I'll, I'll just add this, you know, having this conversation amongst our friends, our family, our acquaintances, um, it's tremendously important because a lot of what happens and a lot of what I've seen is people shy away from this conversation because of fear or judgment um, based on their opinion. But if we take judgment away and take understanding away, I mean, or, or, and put understanding in, then the conversation flows more freely and I can gain perspective from, you know, you, Black Bobby, I can gain perspective from John and others can do the same as well without actually feeling like we're going to lose something or be, you know, judged as an evil person. But this conversation is necessary. And I appreciate y'all calling in. We can just wrap things up. Um, thank you so much. I, I, I really appreciate it. And I'm looking forward to seeing the results that come from our conversation. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much, Luke. And thank you very much, Jonathan. I'm sorry we had to have this chat, guys. But thanks. Thanks for doing it. Conversation number two. Hey, I'm Danielle, um, and I um, am 36, and I am originally from Conyers, Georgia, but I currently reside um, t in Towson, Maryland, right outside of Baltimore, about eight miles. Okay, cool. Yeah, um, so I am a social worker through mm -hmm. and through. I have worked clinically um, as a therapist, working with individuals who are recovering or in recovery from heroin or opioids. Mm -hmm. Um, I've worked in a couple different capacities. I've worked within the incarceration sy um, system of Hawaii um, with probation. And I also um, in the past have worked with like with hospice. So just kind of all things social work. Um, currently, I'm in my second year of my PhD at the University of Maryland, Baltimore. And my focus is on gender issues, trans issues. Um, and so I'm really, really passionate about social justice issues, um, which is why this this situation and, you know, killing has been so difficult to stomach, right? Because yeah. social justice is, you know, the pa sticking up for people or being passionate about things because people cannot help something and, yeah. you know, society is um, oppressing them for it. So it's definitely social justice is a huge passion of mine. So that's a pathway you've been on, which is amazing. And so I'm so happy that you are joining this conversation. Um, and Maybe at a later time, I'd like to talk about your work with um, people people with opioid addictions, because I actually um, sit on the board of a nonprofit organization that um, is 
here to get people active that have opioid addiction and that are in recovery. So, um, yeah, awesome. Yeah, we'll talk about that later. Uh, Jay, are you able to, uh, were you able to? Yeah, I figured it out. I, I apologize. I had somehow jumped into the recording twice. So that's why I was okay. echoing. But I figured it out. <clears throat> and yeah, you know, so for me, um, you know, I'm a young uh, black entrepreneur as well as a, a guy that's been involved in um, a lot of different things in my background in my life um, from being a, you know, uh, government official and fire department um, to working in private organizations to just always being involved um, within the community. And a lot of the reasons why I feel like this is something important to me is just from living in Atlanta, growing up in the South, um, I just really want to make sure that um, we approach these things from a way to build bridges versus um, dividing with, with uh, creating walls. So absolutely, really, you know, happy you invited me to the conversation. Absolutely. And before we get into uh, the meat and potatoes of things, um, this is a culturally diverse conversation. So, you know, do you mind, do y'all mind identifying your ethnic backgrounds? Not at all. Um, I'm Dan- Danielle. I am a white cis female. My pronouns are she and her. <laughs> I always do pronouns. Got to <laughs> I, I dig it. I dig it. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and I'm a, a black man I'm here from Georgia. And, uh, you know, that's it. <laughs> okay, cool. I mentioned on an uh, earlier episode that I recorded with someone that I am an African-American 34-year-old male living in the state of Georgia. So that's probably the last time I'll uh, say it. Anyway, um, so let's get to it. Um, When hearing of this story, what were your first thoughts? Um, And and, and what type of feelings were evoked um, from this story, as well as past stories that you've heard um, that are similar to Ahmad's? Um, I think the first thing that went through is, I, I, you know, I the, I saw the uh, video circulating around and I, you know, after Trayvon Martin, Michael Brown and um, Freddie Gray, especially in Baltimore, living in this area and the community is still reeling from that six years ago, I think um, I, I didn't want to watch the video because I think sometimes, especially in white communities, and that's the only perspective I can speak from, there's this fascination with the trauma of watching videos and it's just it's something I try really hard not to participate in. And then I clicked on it accidentally and I saw some of it and I was like, well, now I got to watch the whole thing. And I was just, I was sick. I was stomach cause that's in Brunswick, Georgia, you know, I'm from Georgia and uh, I just, you know, I spend so much of my time in West Baltimore. So to me, I'm really thinking and speaking a lot about, um, systemic oppression and race issues all the time. So this was just, it, it was just, it was a, especially since I have friends and family who are in black and brown communities. So it was, it was awful. Yeah, no, I can, I, I appreciate you sharing your feelings on that. Jay. Yeah. And I think I share that sentiment of um, just really shocked. And uh, I would say taken aback from a standpoint of it just kind of seems like in 2020, this narrative should change. So it was very disturbing to like my initial feelings and thoughts. It was, it was just a a large stream of emotions that 
honestly, we're very uncomfortable um, because here, I mean, with this happening in Georgia and South Georgia, it just felt a little too close to home. And growing up, we really have been seeing this our whole lives, though. I mean, mm-hmm. I have I have I've lost people I really know that I used to play ball with and really, you know, family members lost them to similar type situations where it just seems like there was a a disconnect between what the result was based off what the desired outcome was. Mm. Now, yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's a it's a weird space that you fall into, right? When it hits close to home, um, because you think um, when your parents are warning you of these things as a young black man in America, um, or even a young black woman in America, are warning you of things, uh, you kind of think, nah, that's not going to happen to me. That's not going to really hit close to home. But, you know, as an adult, you really can appreciate um, the warnings and the things that were, you know, being said. And, Taking it back to childhood, I know that both of you are parents, um, and I'm curious that how what what kind of conversation does this um, what kind of conversation plays out with uh, you and your children? Um, <clears throat> I think I'll just I'll jump. Oh, well, you know this year. Yeah, sorry. I know you were asking about parents. Sorry, I don't know why it kicked me off. I'm here. It's okay. Um, it, I was saying, what kind of conversations um, stem from stories like this as parents now? Um, and I, I'm just curious. Yeah, I mean, for me, I I want to say also, and like in response to reactions, I've had several reactions to this experience, like watching it unfold, especially as I watch um, within white communities, you know, I have family throughout the South who are completely colorblind. And, you know, I saw rhetoric immediately that was like, well, we don't really know the whole story. Like we don't really, we, you know, it could have been edited. And it was just, um, it was such a, it's so, so, so disappointing because there's such a fine line to walk of just like pure outrage, but also um, not creating moral disengagement among white communities. Cause I think there's such a moral disengagement at this mm. point. Um, and so like when I talk to my son who is born in America as a white cis male, he, you know, he has a lot of privilege, unearned privilege. And so we spend a lot of time talking about that. Um, and, you know, I think it does start, he's eight years old and, you know, yeah. he's, he goes through Baltimore with me. He knows I'm a social worker. Um, you, you can't ignore homelessness and race in Baltimore. You can't ignore like the most, like Baltimore is one of the most segregated areas in America um, still. And so it's, you know, we talk about responsibility and like, you know, we inter- we, in our household, we bring in race, we bring in sexuality, we bring in gender because all those things matter. So, you know, um, he's probably sick of it at this point, but it's, it's, it's important, you know. Which is going to give him perspective when he gets older because he will be amongst people that don't know or didn't have parents like you. Yeah, he can't be a. I mean, as a white male, he he has the potential, as we've seen, to be extraordinarily dangerous. Same with me as a white female, right? Like, there's a lot of power in systems that are set up in his favor that, like, he needs to go out into the world with some responsibility and care. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, you mentioned something that was a uh, very key, and Jay, I'm going to let you answer uh, on your parenting, but then I want to segue into um, what you were talking about when people were saying, "Hey, we don't have the whole story." 
that's a very interesting thing as it plays out. And I want to know your thoughts, um, despite having the whole story or not. But, Jay, you can go ahead. Yeah, so, you know, it's actually interesting to hear um, her dialogue on that because in my scenario, I actually feel um, that, you know, because I'm actually raising a, a young black daughter. She's She just turned nine. And we have not confronted this topic as much in our household. That's the truth of it. And I think that's why it was kind of a gut check for me even to really put into perspective the fact that if we don't start having this, this open dialogue that she'll have to just, you know, encounter this um, without some type of dialogue as well uh, from me, you know, her parent that probably has gone through a lot more of it. Um, unfortunately, I feel like I have probably tried to shield her from some of this sure. because I do know what it's like when you automatically put color on your kids, mm. you know, and growing up in Georgia, I, you know, I grew up in a diverse area too, where, you know, I was trying to be friends with everybody. Mm -hmm. You know, we mm -hmm. tried to get beyond the privilege that was very apparent. So I, I, I do feel like I probably need to do um, something different and that this type of event has created pause for me uh, to look at how I do want to approach that without necessarily pushing one thing one direction or the other because I still want her to be open-minded and I don't want her to start forming um, any type of prejudice because of what her daddy's saying, um, but to really go into the world and see it for how she sees it. And it's, that's, uh, you know, I applaud you even admitting some of the things that you admit, but mm -hmm. sometimes it does take things um, as adults and um, to, you know, to shock us and to help us see, um, you know, it's just, it's something that's there. And sometimes we do try to shield the, our loved ones that are younger than us from harsh reality. But, um, you know, with that being said, Danielle, going back to what you said about not having all the facts, um, because I don't want people to just think that this discussion is all on, you know, uh, one side of the fence. There is a, a, a middle ground where all of the facts are not known and mm. new facts or stories are coming out you know, every day. And, you know, it's so interesting because, yes, and I think, you know, at the end of the day, where I get stuck, not stuck, where I get, uh, where I feel my responsibility, because I am very fortunate. I've sat and, you know, I'm, I've sat and this, this has been like the dialogue of my adult life of social justice and how do we break down and dismantle systems like this. And so for me, when I've seen on Facebook or my family members who are like, Oh, uh, you know what? I just, it's not polite to talk about. We don't have all the facts. And I'm like, we don't need the facts. We don't need to start dehumanizing. You saw what I saw. I don't care what happened. I don't care what they did. They did the same thing with Michael Brown. You know, people started dehumanizing him and they left his body in the street, you know? And this was this mm -hmm. really profound moment of like, black lives do matter. And like, I just, I get really upset about it. And, you know, I try to be proactive and like, constructive but at the end of the day when I have a family member saying we don't have all the facts I'm like I don't need all the facts I don't care what he did at no point does anybody deserve to be chased down by two trucks and filmed with shotguns like that's not a citizen's arrest that's a terrorist act no. like I don't need all the facts and like somebody who's worked 
with in legal systems, I'm like, there's nothing anyone can say to me that makes that okay. And that's what I think happens within white communities. They like my friends and, you know, people we grew up with even, I watch them try Mm -hmm. to find safety. It's all about safety for white communities, I think. And like, them saying, well, this isn't a safe conversation. I'm like, no, it's not a comfortable conversation. That's really different. Like lack of safety is what you witnessed on that video. (laughs) Like you're just, you're not comfortable. Like we have to, and like the first part of dismantling this and talking about it is admitting like as a white person, you cannot not be racist in America. And that's the first thing that everyone teaches you about like looking at race issues, like as a white person being like, oh, let me look at what I actually think. Because if you ask anybody we grew up with, nah, I'm not racist. No way, man. I have black friends. But then you see them on Facebook Mm -hmm. and they're like, oh, you know what? Nah, we don't know the whole story. It's like, no, I don't care. I don't need the whole story. Nothing justifies that. Right. It's a a human life. And not only that, we've seen seen videos where cops handle things without uh, force um, that causes death. Or, and these were not even cops. So, you know, when it when it comes to this topic and this issue, it's like, listen, even if we don't know all the facts or even if someone is wrong on the spot, why is it somewhere up to someone else to call judgment and take someone's life? That's not OK with me. Um, and it shouldn't really be OK with anyone. Anyone. Um, yeah. Jay, Jay, what are your thoughts on the facts and knowing the facts and not knowing the facts and. You know, where do you fall with that? Yeah, and I'm, and I'm glad you brought that up, too, because, you know, obviously some more things are coming out. And as we talked about before, now the attempt to demonize his character, that's starting to happen. Uh, but at the end of the day, this is one of the situations where I feel two uh, ambitious individuals or three ambitious individuals took it way too far. And... And at this point, yeah, maybe we didn't have all the facts. Maybe there's more information that needs to come out. This man was entitled, even if he had done something wrong, he was entitled to his day in court, just like anybody else. Uh, once we start violating a, a person's opportunity to live, mm-hmm. to live, to see another day, mm-hmm. it's gone too far. Uh, we, we even... Uh, people, you know, people have an issue with the death penalty itself for people that have truly been convicted of murder. Mm-hmm. And we still have a problem with that because you take away their opportunity to rehab, to change their life course. Mm-hmm. So the fact that these guys just took his life, mm-hmm. I feel like it, yeah, it's just it's beyond all comprehension that that anyone would think that's OK. Well, and I also I, I agree with both of you um, very much, and uh, I I appreciate y'all sharing those perspectives because it's not something that people get to think about from those viewpoints. Uh, and I just want. Get, oh, I'm sorry. No, ahead. I'm sorry. I just no. Go ahead. Go ahead. When Jeremy was speaking, something that came up was that when we do know all the facts, like Trayvon Martin, okay, like the fact, like, or when we do figure out all the facts, what what do people do? Like what ha- What good comes from that? Nothing. Like nothing has changed, you know, like coalition building has an increase. Mobilization has an increase. Like, so for me, it, it becomes this cop. And like, listen, I, I'm a little more indignant towards my community because I'm, 
done talking about it, right? Like we've been talking about this since 2013. Like, and now what? Like it doesn't, it's never made a good bit of difference to know all the facts. Like I don't care about someone's arrest record or whatever, you know, there's a million people we know the facts for and nothing changed. So I, that's where my like, what, who cares? Do you, let me ask both of you this question. Do you think it is out of fear of judgment from friends and family that people um, are hesitant to jump into this conversation with each other? <laughs> fear of being judged or ruining relationships. I, I have a lot to say, but Jay, you, if you have anything to say too. Uh, well, you know, I, I think... <clears throat> And again, it, it, it's not 100% just of my thoughts, but it's just at the end of the day, the truth is to me, people don't communicate well in the first place, right? Like we already are very much challenged to effectively communicate. That's in any relationship. It can be the most loving person to you. You can still often not convey what you're really thinking in the proper way that they receive the messaging correctly. When you talk about this type of conversation, oh, yeah, it is avoided like the plague. Mm -hmm. And I think it's sickening that we can't just have an open dialogue about any topic, any issue, and then move on from it. You don't have to agree with me. That's fine. I don't have to agree with you. Yeah. But we're all entitled mm -hmm. at some degree to be able to share our true insights, our, our thoughts. I yeah. And I would agree, except for unless your thoughts are racist or that you like your values and morals are built upon the oppression of other people. <laughs> so like I have sat in classrooms where we're supposed to be we're, we're this, you know, a PhD is a terminal degree. There's nothing else after it. So you're supposed to have gone through your inner work. You know, you're supposed to have looked at yourself and like w identify our blind spots because we all have them. But I think coming from the South, it, there's polite conversation and there's impolite conversation. But I think that's such a interesting, like as I moved away from the South to Hawaii and the now East, um, it's not like that in other places. I think it's really concentrated there. Um, but like people struggle so hard to talk about this because A, I've seen in classrooms, um, well, I didn't do anything to anybody. Well, no, you know, and nobody's asking you to say sorry. We're just asking you to recognize this as an actual problem and how can we play a part of helping? Because it's going to take everybody, right? Um, I, I've also cool. seen complete moral disengagement. I see it all the time where people are like, okay, okay, cool. Right on, right on. Yeah, nope. We agree to disagree, agree to disagree. And then it just stops. And then people, mm -hmm. it's, it's an actual mm -hmm. effect. It's called the dig your heels in effect. And then you are now wasting yeah. energy that you probably don't have trying to talk to someone. Cause like, I always have to remember, like, I don't, I have pretty constructive conversations about this. Cause I want to know, well, what does it look like? How do we, but man, I see people just completely morally disengage in the South, like friends I grew up with family. It's not polite, not in Baltimore. It's in your face, you know? Well, you know what? I will piggyback that too, by saying this and, and, and I can speak on this from experience in the fire department. So when I was actually in the fire department, and I'll go ahead and say it was Gwinnett County. Mm -hmm. And back in 2004 was when I joined the force. It was not very diverse, to say the least. I think I was one of 12 black men at the time in a, in a fire department of well over 1,200 oh, wow. individuals. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, and this is in the 2000s. 
Now, one thing I'll comment on, though, what I appreciated and what some of the other individuals that were, you know, black men appreciated, I actually would prefer see who doesn't mm-hmm. like me or doesn't feel a certain type of way just because of the color of my skin. What I didn't like, I didn't like that closeted mm. racism where one guy smiling in your face and then he's saying something else behind your back. And oddly enough, there were a lot mm. of them that had zero qualms about just telling you directly to your face how they felt. Mm. And me personally, I prefer that. Um, I think it's more dangerous that people hide their intentions and hide who they really are. Because if you go ahead and, and, and this is like this really happened. Sometimes they would ask me stuff. And after we had an open discussion, they were like, dang, I didn't know y'all had that view on that. And when I say y'all, they were legit. Their mindset was mm-hmm. black people, right? Yeah. And I was like, yeah, no, actually. And before you know it, we're breaking down some barrier, seeing a lot of the common grounds. And often that's all that was necessary in order to do that. Had they kept some of their stances private, though, trying to be polite, we never would have got there. So I can definitely see where hate speech should never be supported. But I do think if you're just an ignorant ass racist person, you know what? Let me know that. (laughs) Because then I know how to approach you. Come approach you a little bit differently. But it's interesting. Sorry, go ahead, John. No, you. It's just so interesting to hear. And Jeremy, you're a rare person, right? Like you have a lot of space for education and I I like some of my friends who are a part of the Black Lives Matter movement here in Baltimore are like I'm tired the burden shouldn't be on me you can educate yourself this day and age here's an entire list like I think too part of it part of the issue is that self-education is important like we have every act like we have at our fingertips information on how if you just like google racism like white people racism there's a million things we can do so it's interesting to me because i'm like who whose responsibility is it to do that and that's very kind of you you know but it's interesting well you know what what you just said leads into my last question you know whose responsibility is it how Mm -hmm. do we continue this uh, you know this 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 wave of showing that we care or don't care or are in between and if we replace judgment with understanding you get a lot further because what the real problem is is lack of exposure i'll give you just a quick story and i'll let y'all chime in on these final thoughts um i was in the presence um i used to be in childcare, and i was in the presence of a a, a young lady, I believe she was in first grade. Great child. Parents were great. Um, the director of the program said she was going to New York to visit her family. And um, the little girl looked at her and said, oh, I didn't know black people lived in New York. And then it was a very innocent comment, mm-hmm. but it was because of lack of exposure. And another coworker said to me, she said, no, it's black of exposure. And I said, whoa. Hmm. So across the board, just taking that, if there is a lack of understanding somewhere in people's lives where we are either close to them, family members or whatever, we got to take the judgment out so that this lack of understanding can creep in. Because once it hits close to home to them, 
then that's when people get to understand. But we need to help them get to understand before then. All right. Those are my final thoughts. Please, y'all chime in on your final thoughts about how we can continue to show that we care. Um. I have just two final thoughts. One, I agree. I absolutely think there needs to be compassion and empathy in helping people get to a space of understanding. And I also think we can't wait for that, right? Like I can't wait for my grandmother or my cousins in Georgia who are white men who all own guns to finally agree with me that what happened to Ahmed Arbery is wrong because they don't think it's wrong. So like I can have compassion and try to see it, but also I can't wait for that, you know? And that's part of this urgency I think that's happening across the nation. It's like uh, this idea of waiting, what does that look like? But I think like, you know, advocacy doesn't always scream, right? Like, so like, I always think of how can I use my white privilege intentionally? You know, I have friends here in Baltimore who run grassroots campaigns. We donate to them every Christmas. You know, um, I check in on my friends like, hey, how are you guys doing? Like, do you need anything for me? And they will oftentimes say yes, you know, my black and brown friends. Um, and so also, you know, um, just like we had a professor who had a, like, would tell these stories about Freddie Gray and the riots, and several of the people in my cohort were just so overwhelmed by them, you know, uh, so after class, like, a, a couple, like, a couple of us went and talked to the professor, white, our, you know, the white kids, we went and we're like, hey, that's, like, super inappropriate, I think it comes off really toned up, and he stopped, and, you know, our friends were like, thank God, like, I didn't have to go have that conversation, so I think when people think of advocacy, they think of these giant grand stands, and it can be that, but I think it's everyday life, and how do you use intentionally your white privilege, are you speaking up, you know, are you taking the most risks because you have the least amount to lose as a white person? Like, I think those things really matter and they can be small or big, you know? Yeah, totally. Thank you. Jay, your thoughts? <clears throat> no, and, and I'm 100% with her as well on the fact that we can't wait for anybody. And when I really say we, it's we as a whole, which is just yeah. anyone on the that wants to be on the right side of history when it comes to this type of topic. Mm -hmm. um, obviously there's always been individuals that show solidarity and that will jump right in the, the, I mean, that will really jump into danger, you know, with us, we have needed that this entire time. Like I 100% don't want to depend on anyone else to control this narrative, mm -hmm. but I'm not, blind to the fact that it would help if we had some help mm -hmm. like black people can't do this alone um, a, a, a quick story that kind of illustrates this I also used to work in corporate America and in my times there when certain things would happen um, like an event like this it was so eerie when you go into an office and you know you're maybe one of you're maybe one of eight other individuals um, that are black or brown and you kind of can see the look on each other's face like we're hurting right now mm -hmm. but no one else in the office quite grasped that or will even try to open up the dialogue to ask you even though we know we just all saw the same news yeah. but but it's not often that they'll say hey man are you okay how, how does yeah. that affect you you right now? How did that affect individuals in your community? And again, my thing is, is I think go ahead and 
somebody's trying to call me. I'm sorry. I think anyone on the side of that just needs to make the decision to do something. And like Danielle was saying earlier, we can't keep waiting, um, talking and planning and this and that. That's cool. But to me, it's about execution Mm -hmm. and doing it swiftly. And then we can build off of that. So like the top three things I want to do right now is really work on a plan where we increase um, gun safety awareness. I'm not saying you got to go out and get a gun, but what I'm saying is, is clearly there's some disconnect on what safe gun practices are, especially here in Georgia. Secondly, um, like Danielle mentioned before, empathy. Like, just really putting yourself, like, trying to relate. There just isn't enough capacity for that. And um, my girlfriend, she's actually in psychology as well, and she talked about how uh, humans don't even really typically have the emotional intelligence or the emotional capacity to handle a lot of the trauma that we all go through. So Mm -hmm. is this a much bigger thing? Is it like too much? Absolutely. Like we can't Mm -hmm. fix everything in one fatal swoop, but we do have to be cognizant of the fact that we got to do something. And then the last part to me is just overall respect for life. Like this was just a very, very poorly executed way to handle any kind of issue. If we can't sit down and talk, before we have to involve violence, that just really speaks a sad testimony to where we are as human beings, period. So that's very disappointing. And my goal is that I can uh, contribute to that type of direction. And I don't want it to, it ain't got to be political necessary. It ain't got to be anything <clears throat> else. But the agenda is, yo, let's get on the same page and let's do it now. Because if we keep waiting then we'll have another report of something else like this before you know it. And everybody just sad, gloom and doom again and does nothing about it. Yeah. Yes. I totally, totally agree with, with both of you. And I want to just thank you, Danielle and you, Jay, um, and Jeremy to, uh, for coming into this conversation, having it, it's been enlightening. I've, I've, I've seen multiple posts on, on Facebook, um, from both of y'all and, and social media, um, you know, shedding, doing your part, shedding light on this. Um, and this is another platform to do so. I think it's important. And this, this is just the beginning, the start of multiple conversations. And let's, you know, make this a domino effect. This, this type of thing is what needs to go viral. These conversations, this type of understanding. And if we do, what we've been talking about, summing all of the things up that we talked about just now is keeping it very simple, keeping it very simple and finding a way to just converse and to keep the conversation going. But let's not complicate it. Let's keep things simple as we did in this conversation. I appreciate y'all once again. And um, we'll talk soon. Thank you so much for having us, Troy. Absolutely. Absolutely. Appreciate you, brother. Y'all take care. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Conversation number three. So glad that you called in to weigh in on this topic as uh, Ahmaud Arbery's story is taking the internet by storm um, in a good way. Um, It's Mm -hmm. created a lot of conversation and um, it's created a lot of mixed feelings and emotions throughout uh, many communities. And, um, you know, 
having a conversation with you, um, someone that's my friend, is I feel like it's great because this is what people should be doing and this is what some people are doing. And so this uh, conversation is to help people see that these things are actually happening and um, to gain perspective. So I know who you are, but can you please, Emily, um, let the world know who you are? Absolutely. Um, well, first, thank you for the invitation to talk with you. I love um, can talk through all things with you, especially things as important as this. Um, my name is Emily Castillo-Leon. I am the founder and head of School of Ethos Classical, um, a tuition-free public charter school right in East Point. Um, been an educator my whole career. Um, living in Atlanta. Love Atlanta. Love hanging with my husband, going on walks, drinking wine. That's that's me. Um, I would say that what's probably pertinent to this conversation, especially is I'm a white woman. I do work um, in communities where the majority of, of my students and families identify as African-American, and that has been true of me throughout my entire career. So um, yeah, I do think an important, the most important probably uh, thing in this conversation is probably just awareness of my own identity and privileges and how that impacts um, other people. Yes, yes, yes. Thank you for sharing that. Um, you, you're absolutely right. And, you know, let's just jump right into it. Um, you know, when hearing about this story, right, what were your, you know, first thoughts? What were the first things that came to your mind? Yeah, I think when I first heard about it, I actually heard about it a few days before it, it got really big. I think on um, maybe Sunday or Saturday of, of the last week. Um, and honestly, I think the feeling that I had when I first saw it was like, oh, not again, um, not another, not another man, not another person. Um, I think I felt really tired when I saw it, which is insane because I um, am not even like, I can't even imagine what it would be like to be a black man and feel that fear all the time, but also just tired um, because so many of the people in my life that I love and care about, this is a real fear that they live with every day and that they're mothers live with every day and their siblings and wives and everyone. Um, personally, I have a pretty deep connection to this. I had a, one of my students, one of the students who is dearest and most important to me um, was actually shot um, by a police officer last year, fatally shot um, and killed. Um, and so like firsthand have felt that pain so deep um, and just seeing it again made me uh, very sad very angry and also very just tired. Yes. Yes. You know, and I can agree. And I, I do remember that story and I remembered how much you spoke up about it, how much you were on social media about it. And um, I do remember that impact. I mean, that was, I mean, when you told me about any mm -hmm. news like that, it's just honestly terrible. And I'll give you a bit of my going um, as a 34 year old African-American America. Um, when you when I hear these stories, um, you're right. It's just a, a sense of wow. Again, mm -hmm. you know. Sometimes you are able to. Still, it's just like you know, when things going to stop, and when I look back at myself growing up. I was warned of these things as a child. And, you know, we're in 2020. I was born in 86 and we're 2020. And, you know, 
I have to warn uh, kids that I've mentored in the past. Uh, you know, I was in the childcare industry myself in the past um, of these things. Um, my brother has um, children. Uh, I have close friends that have children. So it's crazy that these things are still having to be warned against in 2020. Um, you know, these evoke different type of feelings. Mm -hmm. And so I want to know, you know, after hearing about it and having your initial thoughts and it also bringing up something uh, so strong from your past, um, you know, what did that look like for you as far as feeling wise? Did you feel like you needed to uh, talk about it? Um, how do you deal with those feelings, especially with something hitting so close to home? Like what was my first reaction? What did I do? Um, so I think the first thing that I did after I heard um, about his murder is that I started Googling and reading articles um, to get more context and understanding. And then uh, I saw that there was a video of the, attack and then murder um and actually typically in the past have like been able to to watch those um i think given what has happened with my student like seeing that murder happen on camera like it honestly felt too raw and painful and um just like unnecessary to me to see it i totally believe it happened growing up um in the southeast to grow up in tennessee like we grew up around a lot of folks who are super racist and like i can't imagine truly terribly painfully can imagine and feel like I probably know people who would do something like like what happened um right. so it's like not hard for me to believe at all um but they just kind of want to put some more context to who he was just so I could understand the story of, of the man the victim um and then yeah that's kind of my what I did that was my first reaction um and then just as far as processing it like definitely talk to my husband about it um and just my thoughts and reactions, talked with other people on my team. Um, the majority of, of the team that I work with are um, people of color. Um, and so talking with them as well kind of was a, a first step um, with several of them because I know that that, I mean, it happened truly like in our backyard and such yeah. like there is no, it, it is truly an infringement on your freedom and your life um, to not be able to feel you can exercise uh, without fearing for your life. And so that's kind of the, the process I went through with it. You know, um, and, and, and with you being, you know, a leader and a head of school um, in a predominantly black community, um, did you and your team go over, like, you know, obviously we're quarantined, so school is not in, but it makes you want to reach out and like to the kids mm -hmm. at your school and your community and the families to like, let them know, but, you know, I'm not a parent, but we've all been kids. Um, and so looking to give that information to kids or like help them under be better understand this, mm -hmm. because for us, stuff may not have been like publicized as much mm -hmm. as it is now. But kids know. Right. You know, um, were there any conversations amongst your team Um about how you know it might it might affect your community directly so we that's not something we've done a lot of and we honestly think as a leader like we we should um i do think that there 
is a balance that we are always trying to strike with our we call them our scholars with our scholars. Um, we're a startup school, so the majority of our our students are actually in kindergarten, um, and so even like in our history lessons and during Black History Month, we work with our babies who are that young to really um, affirm their identity. So there is like, you lose part of your childhood when you realize things like this happen and things like this happen to people who look like you. Um, and so given their age, like we, we try to find that balance of preparing them for the world, but also like protecting and building a really affirming, positive sense of self um, in the world. For our third grade students who are going into fourth grade, it becomes like a much more like able to have those real conversations and start preparing them. Um, so I don't know, our third grade teachers in morning meeting when you're doing those virtually actually don't know um, how or if they have addressed that, but I think that's something that would be, I think super smart for me to follow up with them on. Yeah, yeah, I think that would be great. I think that would be great. Um, also, at, be, being an educator, another question I had, it just came to mind. Um, in the future, history books, mm -hmm. lessons, you know, these, we're dealing with pivotal moments in history where people are standing up um, over and over again from, you know, Trayvon Martin um, all the way to Ahmad and every case in between. There's been so many and so many that we have not even heard about. Mm -hmm. um, do you think that this is something that will be taught? years down the road um, or based on, you know, the, the movements, you know, sometimes while living in history, we don't realize like, Hey, this might be studied mm -hmm. at some point. I Do you think that that is something that's necessary? I surely hope it will be something that is studied and learned from. Um, I think there's like the, the quote, the arc of justice is long. Um, so I am hopeful that this is an important story and, and, um, example that we will learn from in the future. I don't have like a ton of faith, honestly, um, in mm -hmm. people and that being right. I do think that um, the people who are controlling the narrative of history and who write those textbooks and who share those um, are people who have privilege and are typically white and affluent. Um, and so I don't know that I, I hesitate to say with 100% that this will be taught. I surely hope it will. I think it will depend on um, who the people are that are teaching and who are writing the history books. And I think my job and goal and mission is to make sure that the scholars that, that I am lucky um, to serve there, that we are putting them in a position to be those people of power and influence so that it is taught um, in history. You know, I'm going to give you this last little nugget and then we'll wrap up here in a second. But the way you just described what you described about how history is controlled there is a mural in Atlanta, Georgia, off of Edgewood Avenue, a place I know all too well. Um, <laughs> but on, on this street across from the gas station, there was a mural done by an artist named Fabian Williams, mm -hmm. um, also known as the uh, Occasional Superstar. Yep. Um, and I believe I am getting his, fir his first and last name right. I know Fabian. Um, and I believe Williams is his last name. But the Occasional Superstar. Um, he does a lot of social justice pieces in Atlanta, but one in particular is called the Paragraphalizer. And it's a picture of all of these African-American books stacked up on top of each other. And he drew a, a contraption, a machine, and it guides you through the mural. And it's, it says all of this information compressed, all of these books compressed into a book that an African-American child 
which is his son who he painted on the mural is holding. And his son is looking like, hey, this is crazy. I know this is not all of the information that like I know is out there. Mm -hmm. But then on the other side is an, another child, um, you know, a Caucasian child, not of African-American descent saying, hey, this is pretty cool. So it's interesting, you know, social media, the, the, the media outlets that we're involved in today, um, hopefully that they can be some good towards making sure that certain things are solidified in history because Google is just a click away. Right. So, um, you know, to wrap things up, let me just, uh, you know, finish with this. Um, do you feel that this conversation, and I kind of know the answer, but do you feel that this is necessary amongst friends, family, not only yours, but others as well, acquaintances, uh, people of that nature. And if you feel that it is necessary, I'm gonna ask you, how do you think in your opinion that we continue to pass the torch, to continue to show that we care? Yep. Well, what you, yeah, I think you know my answer for sure. The answer is yes, I think it's super necessary. I think for this particular man and family, for Ahmad, for, for his family to have justice and to feel supported by a community that is enraged and rallied behind. Um, I don't even think, honestly, when I say like, there is no justice for, for him at this point. Honestly, like justice would be him being alive um, and being able to jog without fear. Um, but I do think that there is um, accountability that has to happen um, with the, the you know conviction and sentencing of the men who murdered him. Um, I think that like the importance of having conversations with people, I think it's super important. I think that is one role that I know um, I can play in the work of, of um, being actively anti-racist is talking like I'm a white person who grew up around white people. It is my job to make sure that they are looking at this injustice, to see it, to know about it, um, and to really feel it. I know that like uh, Dan Quiris, my student who was, who was murdered by a police officer, like the impact that that had on my family, them having like a, who had met him, who knew him, like a close experience with that, like forever changed. Um, I think the way that they think about racism um, in this country in a, in a positive way for them. I do think that was one thing that, that came out from it. Um, so I think it's important for white people to speak up and out and often. I think it's super important for people to be friends with people who don't look like them. Um, I think that's the only real way that we like learn um, from each other, build empathy towards each other. It's like when this happens, I think of my friend Troy, I think of you, right? I'm like, that could be Troy. Um, and I think without having those relationships across all different lines of difference, it's really hard to feel fully invested into care um, in the way that, that we should as human beings. And so I'd say that that's build friendships, people who don't look like you. Um, I think that's an important piece as well. I think it is an important piece. I was fortunate enough to have uh, parents that um, had me building tons of relationships with people that didn't look like me. And uh, I, I feel like you did as well. And so, Emily, I appreciate your time, your energy, and all of your thoughts. And as, you know, we continue on, may we, um, you know, take from what we just talked about, because it's as simple as a conversation. Mm -hmm. And no, in life, we're not going to agree on everything. But look, as humans, it's necessary that we at least talk about it and try to gain understanding and perspective. So I appreciate um, you calling in and 
I wish you a very good rest of your day. Thank and, you. Uh, it was great talking we'll, with you. We'll, we'll talk soon. Okay, bye. bye. Conversation number four. Okay, my name is Deanna Bell. Um, I my age is thirty four years old. Um, <laughs> I'm still a millennial, and um, where I currently reside is um, Brookhaven, Georgia, which is a um, suburb, um, basically right in the Atlanta area. Okay, okay, uh, great. And just because this is about perspective on um, a topic that deals with race, um, would you mind sharing your ethnic background? Of course. Um, I am proud to say that I am um, Black, or as others would say, African-American. Okay, good. Um, I won't say mine because I'm sounding like a broken record with all these conversations. Um, <laughs> y'all know who I am. Um, so before we get into things, what do you do? Or what are you generally passionate about? Like you can mention what you do for a living. If you want to go to you know, what your hobbies are or what you're passionate about or what you're building. We're just curious about that too. Absolutely. Um, so I will say that my uh, corporate or day job, as many say, um, I work for a large financial institution, one of the top three financial institutions in the U.S. Um, I'm not going to say it just for confidentiality. Um, but for that financial institution, I am um, a senior digital marketing manager that um that focuses on what we call UX or user experience. So basically in a nutshell, user experience is the psychology of how, um, it analyzes the psychology of how uh, people or what we call you all users, how they navigate websites and software. Um, so based off of the data and the research that I receive, um, I'm able to assess all of that and determine how we are going to um, design uh, a website or mobile apps or software. Well, that's really dope. <laughs> that's really cool. Um, we definitely need that in this world as uh, technology needs to be made simpler as it's getting hard for people of my age to keep up. No, I'm just playing. But... <laughs> No, really. Let's let's jump into the story about Ahmad. Um, you know, when 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 first hearing of this story, what were your first thoughts? What were your first thoughts, and what kind of feelings were evoked when you first heard of this, or you know, came across um, know, social media or whatever? Honestly, yet sadly, my initial thoughts was, "Here we go again." Um, after you've seen those type of stories about our young and older African-American men um, and these situations that come about with our men, um, you sad to say you become numb to it because it's, it's basically something that I'm used to on a daily basis. So when I specifically heard about Ahmad, and this was prior to the video um, being released, um, you know, it was, here we go again. Here's another story of a, you know, innocent, unarmed black man who is just going about his business, his daily life, um, not bothering anybody. And this is, again, from the reports I had heard initially, not bothering anybody. Um, you know, I read he was going on a jog and then he was shot and killed in broad daylight in the middle of the street. Um, those are my initial thoughts. Um and again, I say I was so numb to it because it's almost like it happens every single week. As far as it blowing up in the news, it's like every week, you know, I know this was in the middle of the pandemic, but it's like 
every week, you know, this happens. Um, and then as I read on or more reports um, came out and said, oh, you know, this actually happened two months ago, then, you know, I kind of, it piqued my interest a little bit more and then I would, you know, start to research and find more articles about the situation and why did it take two months? Why was this all the way back in February? Why is everyone just now hearing about it? Granted, this was in a small town in Brunswick, Georgia, but two months that I, it, it just didn't make sense. And then um, when the video came out and I can, I can watch that type of, content like it doesn't I know some people were just like I can't take I can't watch it you know I can't stomach it I I hate to say it but I can watch that type of uh those type of videos and you know that type of vulgar content so when I saw it it was just I I I I think I was at a loss for words I'm still at a loss for words I can't even describe the feelings that evoked at that point in time um but again, it was not surprising. We're both from, well, you're originally not from Georgia, but I am. I'm born and raised in Georgia. My parents are originally from um, deep South Georgia, which is uh, Belladosta, right on the Florida-Georgia line. So, okay. you know, they've told me their stories. My parents, um, they grew up in the civil rights era. My mom and dad told me about how when it was time for um, schools to be integrated, um, the school system that they were supposed to uh uh, uh, integrate with, you know, the buses still wouldn't pick them up. So they have, they would have to walk blocks of school while the buses, white kids will pass right by them. So this is all, it's nothing new to me. Um, at the same time, it's just like, why am I so dumb to it? Like, I can't, I, I can't fathom the fact that I have to be used to it. Right. You know, I totally, totally agree with you on so many levels and being used to it. Right in 2020 um and going back a little bit talking about what your parents said like you know these are things uh amongst black families that are talked about especially our age group you know my parents uh, my mom she's related stories to me where she had to you know when she visited when she was from new york but when she visited the south where our family was you know going through the rear side of restaurants not being able to eat in restaurants you know, and hearing that stuff, it's like, you know, it's my mom. It's not that far removed. You know, it's not like my grandmother's story. You know what I mean? Or my great grandmother's story. It's like, this is my mom. So it's crazy to hear that and to hear some of the things. And then also, you know, I share some of your same sentiments where it's like, you hear these stories and you're almost not surprised. It's like, again. And then you go back and forth in your head whether you really want to watch the video or not, you know? Because for me, um, I'm like you, I can watch those videos. Uh, my biggest problem is um, the anger it incites sometimes when I see it. And, I'm, and, and, and you try to understand because the, the, the constant question is why? Why, why, why? So I definitely understand where you're coming from. And it sucks that oddly enough, at our age, there are there is some level of uh, desensitization. Mm -hmm. I think that's a word. Um, so there, there's some level of that to where, how does that affect our kids? I know we don't have kids, but like our kids in the future or our nieces and nephews, does this desensitize them more? Mm -hmm. Does it make them less afraid? Mm -hmm. You know, because 
as young um, African American uh, men and women, these stories, we still unfortunately have to have the same type of stories that our parents had with us. Absolutely. Um, so go ahead. Oh, no, I was saying absolutely. I was agreeing with you. Now, taking into account, like, uh, you know, you being a daughter, um, what type of things might your parents have advised you against or things that you might have come up against? That, like, we have to be so aware because, you know, the angry black girl image, we don't want to portray that. We don't want uh, anyone to feel threatened by just us being a black woman, just by being angry. Um, you know, that my mom had that concern and she immediately thought the extreme because that does happen that, I mean, let's think of Sandra Bland. She had an incident with the cops yeah. and then she ends up dead. Um, yeah. So just the fact that my parents have to worry about that, if I encounter a police officer who are supposed to protect and serve, the parents have that concern, they have that fear. Um, so it's so unfortunate. It's very unfortunate. It's reality. So, you know, with this whole Ahmad story, what, um, what do you feel like? is the most necessary thing to happen with us as a community and as friends. And I know yourself and I know we know each other pretty well and we both have very diverse friends um, and family members. What is the, what is the, uh, what is the takeaway from this? You know? Um, short term, I, uh, I had recently put up a Facebook post about, you know, again, I'm from Conyers, so a lot of my child, basically 99% of my childhood friends are uh, white. And so, you know, when the story broke out, like, I noticed that, like, with, the, with this video being so blatant, you know, I was troubled by the fact that I did not see any of those childhood friends who I spent nights with went to their parent or yeah, went to their parents' house, like spent overnight trips with on cheerleading camps. Like these people who, you know, called me their friend for them just to sit idle and not say anything. That was such a problem for me to the point where I actually had to call it out. And I never called like that out um not addressing white people um so i think short term like i feel like we need to have those allies who will actually stand up and not be afraid of what their friends or families are saying like actually everyone is break time go ahead and take your 15 minutes and please step away actually acknowledge that everyone go ahead and take your 15 minutes and please step away um, sorry, that's my <laughs> that's oh. my screening call. No, 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 you're fine. Okay. Um, you Hello. No, no, yeah, no. Yeah, I'm, here. I'm here. Okay, okay. Anyways, um, so short term, yeah, I feel like we should have you know people across all aisles and all colors to actually acknowledge that there's a problem. It's not going to happen overnight. It's not going to happen in five years. It's not going to happen in ten years. But it's just. I just don't understand how some people can just be so oblivious to the fact that this is happening out here. Now, long-term, long-term is um, we need to vote. We need to um, reform our criminal justice system um, by voting and also by um, 
stepping up to the plate. Like we always talk about, you know, our judges are doing us wrong. Our cops are doing us wrong. The DAs are doing us wrong. Da, 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 da. All those people are in the cr criminal justice system justice system so we need our people to step up to the plate and try to take those positions we need more black judges we need more black lawyers we need more black da's we need more black ags yeah more black people and even in you know the prison system we we need all of that it sounds like yeah what we're really getting at here is a balance of perspective and understanding and less judgment because that is the ultimate thing like these conversations that you like you wanted more support from your friends, your childhood friends, you consider close, you know, but on that, on the other side of things, not saying that it's okay, but on the other side of things, you know, people are in fear as well as how they will be looked at um, from their family members or their friends that may err on a different side. Um, and once you listen to the podcast, we had a whole nother conversation about that. This is why it's so good to have different conversations and stay in the pocket with understanding people's uh, perspectives because the general theme that strings along is, is that, you know, we want understanding, less judgment, understanding. We can be understood on other platforms, mainly entertainment, mainly music, culturally through um, the culture that we've created, hip hop, which is in it, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a culture that brings everybody, is welcoming to everybody. When there's certain situations, we get the short end of the stick. Yeah. Always. And yeah. so um, that's something that, you know, this podcast will expand on and your involvement and your thoughts will provoke and inspire people to think more. So I appreciate you. Um, and, um, you know, that pretty much wraps it up. I appreciate everything that you've said. I mean, you've given me a different perspective um, that I haven't even thought about coming from a black woman in America. I think that it's great. And I appreciate you taking this time, Didi. Thank you. I, you called me by my, you called me by my high school day. I know, right? That's all straight said, Didi. <laughs> <laughs> Go way back. Back to middle school. Um, right. Well, look, I appreciate the conversation. It was raw, uncut, and I know that the audience will do the same. So, looking forward to seeing you. Stay quarantined, safe, and uh, I decide to do a podcast. Uh, maybe we can all sit and, at a table and talk. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, enjoy the, enjoy the rest of your night. Thanks for Thank calling you. in. Thank you. You as well. Thank you. All right. Bye, dude. Thanks for listening in. And once again, I am your host, Luke Legacy. Don't forget to share, subscribe, and follow us on IG at Decide Period Brand. And if you want to chime in on the conversation, our email is Decide Period Brand number one at gmail.com. Thanks for tuning in.